Welcome back to Mortuary Mayhem, a podcast by funeral service professionals for funeral service professionals, where any day above ground is a good one. Today, we're going to talk about how to properly study. Now, back in January, we were about to start the spring semester, and we brought to you a prior lecture that had been recorded on how to take a test properly. And that's a skill on its own, honestly. I mean, you can study, you can know your material, but if you can't read a test properly, you're not going to be prepared, you're going to get flustered, and you're not going to do well. So I encourage you, look back at January and listen to that uh, podcast episode. Uh, It's very vital in being prepared. But as we are getting really close, I know we have a lot of schools that have already gone back, and we have uh, the rest that are going to probably be starting classes in about, what, about a week, uh, two weeks now. So as we get really close to the semester and wrong crunch time, our vacations are starting to wrap up, or maybe they already did. We're going to cover how to properly study. And now you're probably telling yourself, oh, come on. I've been studying my entire life. I passed kindergarten, right? Now, why do I need to know this? Well, studying goes far beyond what you may have been taught or what you think. Studying is a skill. And we're playing into how the brain works. Now, you're saying... Well, that's great. I can read stuff. I do fine on my quizzes. Or, you know, I hear it. I see it. I'm, I'm fine. I, I, you know, I study. I read the book. And you may be right. You may do fine. But how about we do better? Right? There was a, I was at a seminar many, many years ago now. Um, it was actually like a dinner, dinner meeting. And the owner of the Celtics was there and you know, probably about sitting about three feet from me. And he was telling a story. And in this story, he said he was, you know, at a big assembly. You know, picture the biggest auditorium you've been in, a massive arena, and Michael Jordan is on the stage. And you have all these business men and women in the audience. And there was somebody about mid-audience, you know, midway up the audience. He's on his phone and he's spittling, right? And something we all kind of take for granted nowadays, this is obviously a while ago, so maybe we didn't take it for as much granted as we do now, but that's just what people do. But is that proper? No, it's not really polite. So Michael Jordan up on the up on the stage kind of points out and says, you know, sir, am I bothering you? And he looks up and this is a real story. I'm not making this up. This is a real story. And he looks looks up and he says, Oh, come on. He says, I'm the best salesman, you know, in this entire auditorium. I sell more than anybody else in this room. What are you going to tell me that I don't already know, right? These other people are here to learn from you. I'm already I'm already the best. What do I need to know? And Michael Jordan looks down and he says, well, as far as I'm concerned, it goes, I'm the best basketball player that ever hit the court. He says, but I'm also the first one on the court, and I'm the first one to leave that court, he says, and I practice every single day because I can only get better, right? And you look at this with pro athletes, whether it, no matter what it be, basketball, uh, football, soccer, whatever your 
sport of choice is, think of your favorite athlete and think about what what sets them apart from the others? What sets apart, whether even if it was just high school or college level, you know, and I don't mean just, but, you know, just it, it doesn't have to be pro. No matter what level, what sets apart the star athlete from the rest? Maybe they have natural talent and maybe they got through because maybe they do have natural talent compared to those around them. And the same thing does apply to studying and learning. But, you know, there are some that, you maybe have natural talent. Maybe your ta- talent's not as natural as you thought it was. Maybe you were just raised in an environment where you've learned a lot, so you have a huge foundation. Or maybe you, have, going back to ab- uh, athleticism, is maybe you were raised in a family that's always, you know, throwing the football around the front yard and always engaged in things. And maybe you started playing sports at a very young age. So, was that really natural talent? No. It was rehearsed. It was practiced. It was given to you because you learned from a young age how to do these things. I know uh, growing up, you know, we went on car rides and my father used to ask, you know, questions constantly asking questions. It was great because I learned. So those those questions, I laugh about it, but, you know, we'd be driving down and, you know, we'd maybe be carpooling, you know, there'd be other cars on the road that were with us going to our destination. And he's like, all right, uh, that person we just passed, their car only goes 60, you know, two miles an hour. Otherwise it will, you know, start to shake. So we knew these, we knew these people that were in the other car. And he says, you know, we just passed them. He says, I'm going, I don't know, 72 miles an hour, 75 miles an hour, whatever the speed was. He says, we have X amount of miles left to the trip. They can only go this speed. I'm going to consistently go this speed. At what time am I going to arrive? What time are they going to arrive? And what's the distance, or what's the difference, rather, between our times? How long? How much longer are we going to be at our destination, at the campsite? So I was young, and these are the kind of things that I was doing at a young age. So did that make me or improve my ability to do math later on in school? Oh, you bet, you bet it did. So I was constantly thinking. I was constantly being taught how to do things. So I was able to solve problems that, you know, they didn't come to easy to me. We were trained to do that. And the same thing with sports or whatever it is that you're doing. So we need to train ourselves consistently to learn in our academic environments. We cannot just take it for granted and say, well, I've done well. So you may have done well all through grade school, high school, and you just, eh, I don't need to study. It all comes to me. And then all of a sudden, welcome to college or welcome to grad school or welcome to the working world or welcome to whatever it is that you're entering. And now all of a sudden, you just hit a roadblock. You just hit a brick wall because it didn't come easy anymore. All of a sudden, you've exhausted the fact that you you had a foundation and you got through to this point, but all of a sudden that foundation's not there anymore because you're now entering the next stage. But because you never learned how to study up to that point, because you took it for granted that that's that's what worked for you, but you never you never had to learn how to do these interesting creative study techniques you all of a sudden hit a point where you don't you're not familiar how to do those and you're going to stick with what you always did versus the individual that i and i'm this me speaking as an educator i 
This is me as a student, and this is me as an educator watching which students survive and which ones don't. So those that consistently all through that period did never took it for granted that things came easy to them. And they consistently stressed themselves out. I know we all have functional anxiety. That's what makes us successful. But those that consistently said, I can do better, never took it for granted that they were doing fine. They may have been the top of their class, but they said, I can do better and always found another way to do it or consistently learned new study mechanisms or new learning techniques and never gave up. Those are the students that survive. So you say, well, Professor Shea, you keep telling us about these crazy study techniques. What are we actually looking at? What is a crazy study technique? Well, part of it is that you need to commit things to your memory, not your short-term memory, your long-term memory. Now, I'm going to ask you, and obviously I can't see you right now, but think of to yourselves, how many of you by a show of your hands right now, how many of you can read something and you're saying it's committed to memory? You think about that for a second. Now think, how many of you, when you see something done, right? I'm going to show you how to tie your shoelace and all of a sudden you're like, yep, got it. And you're, and you run with it, right? You're now, now able to tie shoelaces right? or make a peanut butter jelly sandwich, whatever, whatever it would be. Think about that. Now, how many of you need to hear something? How many of you, when you hear something, you're like, yep, totally listen to the Mortuary Mayhem podcast. I got this. I understand everything the world has to bring to me because I heard it said. Think about that. Think about that for a second. All right. Now, how many of you have to get it by more than one method? How many of you have to see it and you have to hear it or how many of you have to see it and you have to read it or maybe you read it see it and hear it maybe you have to touch it maybe you have to do it okay i show you how to try the shoelace but you're like oh, i don't know and then all of a sudden you do it and you're like oh i got this maybe it's a see and do at the same time right you ever taken a cpr class right i've been teaching that for a while right and there's a value to the fact of you can't just watch a video and go, oh, yep, I think I got that. No. What do you do? You are watching the video and you're doing it at the same time. And then you have an instructor that is critiquing you and assisting you in doing that. There's value to that. There's value to how you get something, right? And that's the same thing that I know as an embalming instructor that I do, I show you how to do something right i can show you a video maybe i maybe i do at the same time maybe i don't but maybe i show you the video i demonstrate or i demonstrate something one or the other right or i or i sit there and say okay this is how you close the mouth now meanwhile either you have mouths in front of you that you are closing along with me right so okay you saw what i just did and then the next thing is okay now Either I'm going to do it again and you're going to do it step by step with me because that puts you in the driver's seat or you're going to do this independently. I showed you how to do it. Now you're going to do it and we're the instructor is going to walk around the room and going to critique what you're doing and show you how to do it. Or again, it's the do it along with me or a combination of, okay, I'm going to do it. 
You're going to do it along with me step by step. Now, I'm going to now take the time to walk around the classroom and I'm going to critique you while you're putting cosmetics on, while you're closing mouths, while you're raising an artery, while you're doing something. And then now you're going to do it, but now you don't have that reliance on doing a step-by-step. So now you have to kind of think for yourself, but you've already seen it and you've already done it. So now you're just doing it better. And now now we're at a point where now, do you have that skill? Are you sharpened with it? We well, may get the concept, but you may forget it. So now we need to sh- we need to keep repetitively doing it so that you don't forget it. Now, beyond that, we now need to take you to a point where we sharpen that skill. And that's how classes work, right? So your freshman, your first semester, you're starting to get knowledge that is regurgitory. So, are you going to apply the history? Yeah, we can have some fun activities where maybe you do timelines and maybe we reenact something. I don't know. We'll have some fun. We can have some fun with things, right? So, we now are giving you information that you are going to learn. You're going to hear a professor speak, and then you're going to get a quiz every cl- the following class, and you're going to regurgitate that information onto paper or onto the computer. Now, your second semester comes along. And in your second semester, you have a combination of classes. You have some classes that are regurgitation, right? We teach you accounting and maybe some intro to business courses. And we teach you some of these classes that are pure regurgitation of information. We have other classes maybe like funeral directing, where you are sometimes regurgitating something. Okay, when you go into a church, what direction does the casket go? When you, you know, when you have these religions, which ones cremate? Which ones only bury? Which ones, okay, so you need to know that stuff. And you're taking that information and you're regurgitating it onto an exam or a quiz. And that is proving your knowledge base. We also have classes that are fully hands-on, right? We have clinicals where you're out and you're embalming in the field um, or in the, you know, school's prep room. And then you have classes that are half and half. Maybe this is embalming, right? So embalming is some regurgitation, right? We're going to get some, you're going to have some quizzes that are based on just simple, you know, what's what's the uh, action level of formaldehyde in the prep room? What is a low index? What is the range for low index chemical? What is the range for middle index, medium index? Uh, what's the range for a high index? How many concentrated ounces of cavity fluid should you put in? What index of cavity fluid should you put in? Where are the arteries? So these are questions that you're going to regurgitate. But then you also have the point in the class where you're now physically doing something, where we're physically raising arteries, we're physically closing mouths, we're physically doing something, and you're able to apply that information. Then we move on. Now you're in an embalming two class, right? I know each college has something different. Sometimes embalming, you have embalming three, four, whatever. But so let's now you're moving on to embalming two. And now you're taking what you learned and the regurgitation is over. Now we want you to apply it. Now you need to think for yourself. I have an edematous case that was 360 pounds, 
rolled down an embankment into the swamp. That body was found a day or two later. It was the middle of the winter, and the water was cold, so that did slow some decomp, but it is swampy. The person rolled down. I gave you some of the information. There's a lot more in, you know, what I normally ask my students. There's a large page, but now your scenario is what do you do, right? Now I have questions for you. How do we embalm this case? And step by step, what chemicals do we use? What procedures? What do you do first? What do you do second? How are you going to do this? How? What are we going to do before we even embalm? What are we going to do post-embalming? When do I tell this family that they can view their loved one? Because I'm telling you right now, it's not going to be tonight. And it's probably not going to be tomorrow morning because I have work to do. And I need to know that time frame, right? So now you're not regurgitating numbers. Now you're not regurgitating something. You're taking a scenario and you're making sense of it. You're taking a scenario and you're applying what you've learned before into a practical situation. Now, maybe putting it on paper, but it, you're still taking it and you're putting it into a practical situation where you have to apply it to real life. And then we start moving on, right? So now your typical funeral program is four semesters. You're now in your fourth semester. You're in your last semester. Now you have classes like restorative art, uh, you know, regulatory compliance, like mortuary law, things like that, uh, merchandising. So now we're tying things together. So now you've learned your funeral directing uh concepts in your second semester. You've learned how to practically apply things maybe in your third semester where now you're out in the field and you're actually working services. You're saying, oh yes, I remember that. I regurgitated that on paper and now I'm applying it. Now I'm seeing it in play. But am I really thinking for myself, right? So now you're starting to you're starting to think for yourself. By your last semester, you should be able to apply it. You should be able to take the this knowledge, and now you're doing presentations. Now you're out there, and you're thinking for yourself of what do I do? How do I do this? How do I get creative? And how do I solve problems? So now we're dealing with the law, right? The mortuary law. And now we're now able to apply this to a situation where... We, we're given a case, how do you handle this? How do you prevent this? And how do we overcome challenges, right? How do we prevent ourselves from getting into trouble? And same thing with the restorative art. Now we've gone to from regurgitation of embalming material with some practical application to thinking creatively over the fact that nobody ever comes in that prep room that is the same, right? Would you go to the doctor? Think about this. Think, really think about this. Would you go to the doctor... And you say, look, doc, I got I got chest pain. And he says, yeah, I got Prilosec. Take that. Now, he may be right. Prilosec may be treating that because maybe it's a stomach issue that is giving you chest pain because you think it's chest pain. But in all reality, he's using his wisdom as a doctor to determine that it's really a gastrointestinal issue uh, and the trachea is burning up and you think it's chest pain. So that may be correct. All right. But what if you really had chest pain? What if you had a heart condition? Does Prilosec do the job? No. Prilosec is not going to fix your heart. You need cardiac-based medications. The same thing. Would you go in and even further stretch? If you went in and say, hey, look, doc, my foot hurts. I got Prilosec. Prilosec works for everything. No. Okay. That is not how things work in pharmacology. So 
why would we do the same thing when we're embalming or when we're putting, you know, we're, we're working on getting somebody presentable enough to be in a casket in the front of a parlor? You wouldn't, right? So we don't use the same chemicals on everybody. Everybody should be independently assessed as to what chemicals they use. And that is where these later classes come in, is applying that, putting that into perspective. And now we take restorative art where you really have situations where this isn't little old granny came in and just needs... Uh, you know, call the so-called normal case embalming. Little, this is the case that this individual was stri- struck or over, run by, run over by the wheels of a train on train tracks. Okay, something make most embalmers cringe right there. Just the visualization of that. Or this individual has been dead, you know, for an extended period of time loss of life over an extended period of time does not make a very easy case to work with. We have, you know, overdoses, right? Pharmaceutical overdoses. Those also play with the chemistry of your body. So how do we handle this? How do we make this individual presentable with cases? That's where restorative art's all about. Cases that are not easy. So now you need to take everything you learned up to that point and you need to apply it. So when I teach restorative art, the first hour, it's a four-hour class. The first hour is lecture. The last three hours is lab. Why? Because it's practically based. But that first hour is to give you an intro as to what you're going to be doing. And then I get to walk around the classroom for three hours. And I get to have you each each week, every single week is the same thing, and walk around and have you practically apply it and put it into perspective while I can give you the further information while you're actually doing it. It is a do and regurgitate. So let's go back to our initial. This is, this is again, this is how things play out. But why do we do things like this? We do this because we need you to practically apply what you're learning. Now, you say, Professor, I got this course. I just need to regurgitate this information. Or maybe you do have a uh, practical exam where you're going to be doing things in a practical format and you need to apply that. So how do I do that? How do I retain this information and remember everything there is to know? Well, get creative. Use all of these aspects. And the best thing to do is to take things in bite-sized pieces. I'm not saying, oh, all right, I read a sentence. Let me go, you know, go to the beach. Well, I read a sentence. Let me go do something else. No, 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 no. I'm saying 24 hours a day you're thinking about this material. I didn't say bite-sized pieces and take it and then run away. I'm saying take it and run with it. Take it with you. Okay? And why do I say that? Or how do, how you know, what does this really mean? Well, this means that you take flashcards and you leave them in various places of your house, your car, your workplace, whatever the case may be. Now, if you're like me, by the time I write all those flashcards, the exam's already taken place. But we have apps we have so many things look look on your app store for your phone and start looking up all these study tools and make rules for yourself i know rules are hard but you have to make them and a rule is rules are good in your entire life a rule would say i need to go to the gym now if you're me that lasted probably about a month and then i'm like yeah i got something other 
else better to do, right? How many of you do that? How many of you make that New Year's resolution? I mean, the gyms love new, around New Year's. I'm sure they do because <laughs> they got all these people starting memberships uh, and then never follow through with them. But the you need to stay you know, focused on these things. You want to pass. You want to do well. You need to stick with it. And part of this is rules are saying that every single time I do X, I have to study in a certain way. And that means that whether you do flashcards or whether you do, I in my case, I do post-it notes. I like physical ways of studying. The apps work as well. So I use a combination. But I'll take post-it notes and I will put, just like flashcards, something on one side, something on the other. And then I keep that stuck together but I break it the break that uh pad up into pieces I stick some to the microwave stick some to the bedroom door stick some to my office door stick some to my steering wheel or dashboard and they're everywhere so now what are you doing right or next to the you know washer or dryer so now it's okay let me go down and do a load of laundry so now I read I read the first one and while I'm loading the washer I'm thinking about the answer I'm not just saying like oh I gotta get this right away and thinking quick I'm thinking about the answer so while I'm loading the washer oh that's what it was I flip it over oh that's that's what the answer was okay now I am I didn't move on to something else I'm emptying the dryer now I'm thinking about why that's the answer so now I'm taking that into perspective of why is is that it now I'm committing it to memory because you're thinking about it in every perspective. And now you start to wonder. You start to think about all the other things that it could be. So when I say, well, you're going to embalm in a Demodus case this specific way. You're reading that in your card. You're reading the answer. You're reading all of that. So now after you're like, oh, I get it. But I wonder why. I wonder if... It was this case. I wonder if it was cold water versus hot water. I wonder if the, you know, if I used this type of chemical. I wonder if, 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 if. Ifs are so important in this. So now what I'm doing is I'm not just thinking of it as question and answer. I'm thinking of it in context because guess what? When you get that exam or that quiz, it's not going to be the question that you got. It's not. And the same thing with the national board. I tell my students every single day. They look and go, can't you just tell us the questions? I, I, I laughed. I, not too long ago, I had some students that, quite a few of them all at once, and they said, well, you know, this is ridiculous. You need to tell us, and this is not my students at four C's. <laughs> they know better. But, you know, I had students at another institution that said, you need to tell us the questions that are on the final. How do you expect us to study for a final when we don't know the exact questions that we should be studying for? We need the questions and the answers, and we'll study those, and then we'll take your final. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. Okay? And it's the same thing I've been telling my students for years. So the national board exam is you're not going to know the questions. Do not study that study material. Do not study those, uh, the comp end or the conferences, you know, study material or your professor's quiz material like it's the actual questions because it's not. Some of those are retired questions, but um, if you get the ones from the conference at least, but they're not the actual questions. They may be worded like the questions, but they're not the actual questions. Okay, this these exams are highly secretive. Um, 
highly regulated and you're not going to know the questions. So what you're preparing for is how to know all of the material so that you can answer any question that comes your way. So you'll understand those questions. Two, you need to learn how to take how to answer questions in the first place, how to interpret questions. That's more important. So, but if you're studying the actual questions and expecting to see those actual questions on the exams, you're not going to do well. And I know that we see students the same thing where they're now looking, reading the question, they're reading the textbook and saying, oh, well, what, I don't get it. Where, what are the questions? Are the questions you're going to use in the back of the book? No, 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 no. We write our own questions. So how do I determine what I'm going to take in bite-sized pieces? And again, I left that dryer. I took another, you know, another one. I studied it while I'm bringing the laundry up, you know, the dried laundry upstairs. I'm thinking about it. Uh, and I give myself the answer. I think it's this. And you get quicker at this and then you don't, you know, have to have as many pauses. But now I flip it over. Ah, that was the correct answer. Now you're reading. Now you're thinking about that while you're folding laundry. Now you're just thinking about the answer, doing the same thing. You can see how this is, when they say take, take things in bite-sized pieces, it doesn't make mean take something read you know get the question read the answer and then go do something else or move on with another question because if you just keep moving through that slide deck and you keep moving on to the next question you haven't committed it to memory you've only taken that question and that answer but you haven't committed the why or how that's going to work uh, and that's the most important part now you could do the same thing uh, if you want to just read something. So now you have the book, you, re you open the book, read a, sen read a sentence, read a paragraph, maybe paragraph is better, read a whole paragraph uh, or read a page of the textbook. All depends on what you're reading and how, you know, compact the material is. But you can read a paragraph or read the page just like you with the slide. Now walk around, do something else. You Maybe you, if you're just committing to studying and you're not doing anything else, then walk around the house. Go get a glass of water, just walk, you know, just walk around in circles. I walk around my office in circles. Um, you know, maybe you uh, maybe you want to, you know, bring something in and out to your car, go get the groceries, whatever it be. But just read your paragraph. Now you just spend 10 minutes. Yeah, that's a good time. 10 minutes. Just walking around for 10 minutes just thinking about the answer. Just thinking about the why. Now, how do we know what we should be thinking about. What should we be studying? Well, you could think about the bold words in a, in a textbook, probably zone you in, you know, hit the bullseye on the most important concepts. But it doesn't mean that. It could be small little things. So read the paragraph and think to yourself, if I was writing the question, how would I write this? What could I ask? A, what, what in here could I ask a question about? Things with options are the best things to write questions about. So, if I'm asking about the indexes, I can say which of the following is a high-index fluid, and I give you an 18, a 32, uh, whatever. So now I'm giving you all of these various indexes, and I'm asking you which one of those is high-index, or which one of these ranges. So things with variables make excellent questions. So think about that when you're reading. When you're reading, think about what would make a good question. Things that are stand out that are very important, someone's going to find a way to ask a question about it. If it's something about the arteries, we're probably going to ask a question about it. If it has to do with chemical concentrations, we're going to ask a question about it. If it has to do with certain types of cases, we're going to ask a question about it. We're going to find a way to because it's important information that needs to be asked. 
So think about that. So now how do we consider the um, getting this information by more than one means, right? And you're telling me, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm driving. I can't be reading flashcards while I drive. And my drive is an hour long, long. So how do you expect me to keep reading this and changing topics every 10 minutes that this is just not going to work for me? Well, there's one more aspect that you need to add, and that's listening. So we've read the material, right? You read your paragraph and you walked around your room for 10 minutes. Maybe you did something, you did laundry. Think, Do things that don't require thought. Don't go and read something or whatever. But do things that don't require thought and start committing that to memory by doing your laundry, cooking dinner, whatever the case may be. 10-minute intervals, read another one, move on. But while, but now we have times. So I'm going for my run. I am driving. I'm doing all these things. Well, guess what? All of your phones have a recorder on them nowadays. I remember the day where we had to use a, I used to use a dictaphone or, you know, little cassette tapes. We all have recorders on our phones. Use it. So what you're going to do is read while you're reading paragraphs or while you're reading uh, the book. So now you can read it the chapter. You're going to read the chapter. You should be reading the chapter for every class anyways. So now you read the chapter from start to finish. And while you're reading that chapter, read out loud. And while you read out loud, you have the recorder recording you. So now you've read it. You've spoken it, which is another piece. So when you speak, you commit things to a different part of your memory than when you read. And when you hear it, you commit things to a different part of your memory than when you read it or speak it. So what you're going to do is now you're going to read, you're speaking, and you have a recording. Now I'm driving. Now you're going for your morning run. You're going to the gym, whatever the case may be. You're going to now listen, put your earbuds in or put it on your car radio, and now listen to what it is that you read before. And the best thing is now you have those recordings. You don't have to redo them. So now we're on chapter 12 of the textbook, but you know what? Keep listening to prior ones. Just let them go. You've read chapter 12, but then it's going to, after chapter 12, it's going to start back at chapter one, and it's going to chapter two, chapter three, and you can keep going, and you're going to keep listening, but always commit because that prior material you want to make sure you commit that one you're gonna have a midterm two you're gonna have a final later you're gonna have your national board exam you're gonna have other classes that base off of that material right again embalming two based off of knowledge from embalming one funeral directing two based off of knowledge from funeral directing one restorative art bases off of information from embalming one and embalming two and embalming chemistry and merchandising and management may be based off of the funeral directing. So you consistently want that material committed to memory so that you know all of those aspects. And then when you get to your national board exam, you're going to find that you're going to do so much better simply because you've committed everything to long-term memory. The worst thing you could possibly do as a student, especially in a licensure-based uh, program, is to learn something for the next quiz or exam. That is the absolute worst thing you could possibly do. You should be committing everything to long-term memory. Now, <clears throat> once you've once you've done that, so now you're you are 
reading, you're speaking, you're listening, and then when you have the chance, you're utilizing those flashcards or um, an app or a uh, uh, post-a-note or whatever the case may be in order to keep read. When you're not reading the textbook, you're you're quizzing yourself in those in those ways. And again, keep using old ones. Don't don't just keep sticking with the current chapter. It's not about the next exam. It is about again committing yourself to consistently keeping up and with all of that material. And it doesn't matter what topic you're on. Doesn't matter what semester you're in. Keep going back to the beginning. Now, um, and keep everything on fresh on your head in your mind. Another significant factor is your ability to explain something. So. Any instructor will tell you this, that when you're reading something, you're, you know, just speaking out loud or whatnot, uh, that's just one part of it. But when you all of a sudden have to explain something to somebody else, it puts it into a whole different context. So you'll find that a lot of times uh, if you are asked a question, if you're the presenter at a conference or, you know, maybe you're a professor or something, and all of a sudden you're asked a question. Now, any good instructor is going to say, I don't know if you don't know the answer to it. Um, Nobody should ever make up an answer they don't know. But when you are in the front of a room and all of a sudden you have to think about something and you have to process it and then you have to answer that question or even if you're just driving the car and your friend now has your textbook, which is another great thing to do. Give, you know, here's the agreement. You know, I've done enough reading at my desk. We got somewhere to go. Tell your loved ones, your friends, your family. Um, here's the deal. I'm going to drive. Because what's the first thing they're going to think? They're going to say, well, you have a lot of studying to do. Why don't I drive? And then you can study. And and that's fine if you haven't done a lot of reading on your own. However, the best thing to do is for you to do the driving. And I know that sounds weird, but here here's where I'm going with this. So you do the driving, and then you give them your book which means it takes it out of your hands. You've already done enough reading. You've already done everything else I've already talked about. But in this circumstance, now you have to drive. And without getting too distracted, your friends and family now have to read from your textbook. Maybe they read a paragraph to you and then ask you a question about it. Or maybe they just skim right through just flip to a random page within the chapter you're trying to study or you know if you're further far enough along especially if you're trying to study for the national board exam or your state exams they just flip to any random page in any random textbook and then they ask you a random question now the question that they ask because they didn't study the same thing you did may not necessarily make sense it may not be a good question But you know what? It makes you think and it makes you realize some of the stuff that maybe you realize that you missed because you didn't really think of it as important, but because you skipped over it, you never learned it. So this is a great method. So now they scan along. They find something at random. They ask you for clarification or they ask you, uh, you know, a very, you know, maybe they make up a good question. Maybe they look over and it does have something to do with, you know, the indexes and they look and they say they see a chart. And on that chart, they can say, oh, okay, well, what is a high index? And then you have to explain it. Or maybe it is something very obsolete. And now because you have to explain it, you have to process it, again, in a different way. And you can see everything I'm telling you is about processing things in different ways, commits things to different parts of your memory, which is very important. So now by explaining it, 
now you have to process it in a way that all of a sudden at the end you're like, wow, I just, I just explained something that I didn't fully understand before, but because I had to explain it and I had to put it in different words, and that's what this is all about, I had to put it into different words to explain it to my friend or family member, all of a sudden it made sense to me. Because before, all I did was read it, and I took it at face value. I took the words, I took the numbers at face value. But I never had to explain it. Right? What is algor mortis? What is, you know, rigor mortis? Oh, I've heard of rigor mortis, but what's actually happening? And you're just sitting there going, and, and you've been reading it at face value. But now, because you had to explain that, all of a sudden you're like, wow, I didn't really understand what was happening. But now that I explained it, I had to use different words, and uh, that that's that's one of the most valuable things you can do. So this does come down to, again, having other people read the book, people asking you questions, um, or give presentations on things. So maybe you have a study group in class, and you get together with your friends, and rather than just sitting there going, okay, what do you not get, what do you not get, stand up and you each take a couple pages, a couple paragraphs, and what you do is you're, you're each assigned to a paragraph, and then you have to get it up, and you have to present that to your study group. I know everyone hates doing presentations, but this is very valuable. So you get up, and now you present that to your study group. And because you had to explain it to your study group, that, does, that has that same value. The same thing could go for maybe you don't have a study group. Maybe you're just at home. I know we have a lot of online programs nowadays, uh, remote programs. So it is harder to get together. But do these study groups. You can do them by Zoom, Teams, whatever you have, uh, FaceTime, and you can get to, you can still get together with your with your colleagues and do study groups. But let's say you're you know at home, you're with your friends or family, or maybe the dog. Um, I talk to my dog all the time. Uh, everybody that knows me knows that. Uh, but you know, maybe you just stand up and you present. Just say, hey, look, can you guys, you know, you guys have commercials. How long is a commercial? Each commercial, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to present on a paragraph of the textbook. All right. Oh, oh we're going to sit down. We're going to watch the game. And you're studying, you know, while you're watching the game, you maybe you're studying the next par couple paragraphs. Then there's another commercial. You stand up <clears throat> and you present to all your friends. You have to present to them, you know, and again, they, they don't know anything. They don't know anything. They're not studying the same thing you are. So they don't know this material. So what you're going to do is you're going to stand up and you're now going to present on this information they don't know. And, you know, maybe then the game starts again and you watch the game and then the next commercial, maybe you don't present. Maybe you just answered questions that they had based off of what you said. Maybe they had question, they're going to question you about it, which is great because, again, now you have to explain it in a different way. So presenting and explaining things, uh, both of them, uh, you know, cause you or force you to explain things in simpler terms, and simpler terms are going to embed into your long-term memory much longer. Now, the other things with studying is, again, you do need a good night's sleep, you do need a good nutrition, you do need exercise, you need all of those things. Otherwise, your mind is not going to be where it needs to be in order to properly study and commit this information uh, to long-term memory. Now, other things about studying is do not cram before an exam because all you're doing is committing things to short-term memory. Now, you may get through that exam. You will. 
You you probably will. You you just remembered it. However, by not committing it to long-term memory, when the professor throws something on to a future quiz or exam from a prior chapter, you didn't commit it that long because you were only focusing in the short term. And that's not good. So, and when you get your national board exam, it's the same thing. You haven't committed it to long-term memory. You're not going to do well because you've only had that in short-term memory all along. So you're only going to remember the last things you learned. The other thing with this, especially with the national board, but thinks finals, midterms is have a, you know, you need that secret weapon. Uh, if you're an athlete, you know, maybe it's your favorite socks. I know a knife. Um, I have a watch that doesn't work. It hasn't worked uh, long before my grandfather passed away. Uh, it, it stopped working. It went into a drawer. But when he passed away, my uncle got the newer watch, the one that he had bought more recently uh, at that time. And I managed to get the broken watch. Now, it works. I just needed a battery, to be honest, actually. It does work. But it's scratched up. It's banged up. It's, you know, it it was well-loved and well-worn. But that's the watch that I always remember him wearing. So it means something to me. And I don't wear it very often. I only wear it to special events. I've worn that watch to every one of my own graduations. I have, when I was confirmed, when I first communion, all of that. So, you know, I've always had something on. So that means something. What is it? My good luck term. I wore it to major exams. I wore it to my national board exam. Again, I was the guy wearing the watch that didn't work to his national board exam. But you know what? That was my secret weapon. It was my lucky charm, right? And athletes have their special socks or whatever the case may be. So you need that. The other thing is you need something that is going to give you a good boost in that morning. So a good boost that morning would be a good breakfast. You do not want a breakfast that is going to give you a high and a low. That's anything with sugar. Um, if you have major exams coming up, lay off the caffeine long before your exams because I know, I know I'm just as guilty. I got through college. There was a cappuccino machine. It was easy to access in the cafeteria. And I, not kidding you, I used to drink, I used to carry three cups of this stuff out to the table. I used to study and I just kept myself awake on it. We've all done it. We've all been there. But what happens in the middle of that exam? All of a sudden, You get this high from the caffeine rush, from the sugar, whatever the case may be. And then mid-exam, you crash. You absolutely crash and you can't make it through. Your mind is shut off. You may not realize it happened, but it happens. And the same thing can happen if you're, you know, obviously a smoker or anything else that would give you a a high. um, Where you can, you know, soda does the same thing, high sugar and all of that. So just be careful. Lay off all these things that give you highs and lows. What you want is you want a diet that's going to last a long time. You want hearty foods, things that are going to satisfy your stomach. Not going to make a gurgle, so you do need bread products. Uh, I'll take pancakes, and I put in chia seeds, flaxseed, sunflower seeds, and I get, like, the the pancakes I make are, like, the protein-filled ones. They're not, you know, um, they're not your more commercial fluffy ones. They're you know, these are solid pancakes uh, that I use. So the 
fact is that it's going to give you longer-term oatmeal. It's going to give you longer-term cereal. Like cereals that are more granola-based, oat-based, are going to give you longer-term. Having cereals that are more that sugary cereal is not going to get you through the day. Um, you think it? You may think it is because that's what you've always done, but it it's not. When you start switching your diet over, you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed at what the difference really is. Getting good sleep. Now, the other thing is before major exams is make sure that you are not cramming that morning. And try, if you can schedule an exam, try to schedule it as early in the morning. I know um, when I went through my more traditional degrees, this is before I went into mortuary science, is I had back-to-back classes with the same professors, you know, for the most part all day. It was we'd be swapping between professors. And for that the professors were able to swap their classes there are just some things that when all of your students are full time that you can do that you can't really do when you have some part timers some full timers people you know failing classes whatnot uh, when all the students are taking the exact same classes in the exact same semester consistently then you know, their option is obviously for the professors to rearrange the schedule so that the exams are always in the morning, um, you know, and alternate what weeks the exams are on in order to do that. But that's not always possible. And I know in my classroom, it's not. So what we do is when you do have control on like a licensure exam, you do have control over that. And when you have control, even if you're not a morning person, they actually proved years ago that there's no such thing as a morning person um, or a not morning person. It's just some people are just always energetic. doesn't matter the hour of the day or night. That's just their personality is enlightening. And then you have some people that are just no matter the day or hour, um, you know, are just not, um, you know, not going to be cheerful, uh, you know, in that regard, at least. Right. They're not chipper in the morning no matter what. So, uh regardless of what time you normally like to get up then what you're going to want to do is get you know just get up in the morning it doesn't you know this is what you need to do you get up in the morning and you start your day early and they found that those that start their day earlier tend to be happier those that sleep in um it does play with your mental health a little bit uh that those that force themselves to get up and the first time you do this the first couple times you do this first long time you do this it may not feel good right you're like oh what am i doing up and then it does fine that those that tend to and as they say morning per you know who's a morning person or not it's those that get themselves up early tend to be happier people uh and I'm not saying that other people are not happy, just <laughs> it's the those that get themselves up early tend to be happier people, um, you know, because it does play into your mental health quite a bit, actually. And what that does is enlightens you, brings you energy. Again, it may, may take a couple times to make that happen, but it does bring you energy that you don't realize you even had. And then... You also have a clear mind. You start your day with a clear mind. So what happens is if you were to take an exam later in the day, you've already done a lot of other things in that day that are now weighing on your mind. You're now thinking of a lot of different things that are now going to distract you, whether or not you realize it, are going to distract you from that exam. 
Whereas if you take your exams, especially your national board exams, any licensure exams you take, you take them first thing in the morning. Okay? Exam center opens at 8 a.m. You're up in the morning. You ate a good breakfast. You drive in. Do not turn on the radio. Do not, re- do not read the newspaper. Do not do anything. Do not search Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever the case may be. Do not do it Okay, under any circumstances. And don't study. Do not. You study up until the day before. And then put your stuff away. You've been studying for at least two years for this material. At least two years. And as a result, you've committed stuff to long-term memory. If you study that morning of, then you will commit things to short-term memory. And you're going to clog up your short-term memory and you're going to block your long-term. And I know what people tell you out there. Oh, just, you know, put the put the stuff that you're having the most trouble with, just put it on flashcards, just read those items that morning, and, you know, at least you don't forget them. I'm telling you, spend a lot of time before that committing that type of stuff to long-term memory and come up with ways to remember things. I'm going to ask you a question. How many feet are there in a mile? I want you to think about that. Don't look it up. Think about it right now. What? How many feet are there in a mile? If you answered 3,280, you are correct. And how do I remember that? Because at five years old, my grandmother taught me that. Five years old. And you know how she taught me? Because... Five people went into the desert, two ate nothing. 5,280. So, 5,280 feet in a mile. So, using these study techniques, you're not just thinking about something as like, you know... 5,280, 5,280. But you know what? Do you think that after all these years I'd remember that? No, I would never remember that. What you're doing is you're relating it to something else, a story. Um, I know we use, you know, was it Roy G. Biv, right, for the for the rainbow, remembering all the colors in the rainbow. We have lots of things. Don't make things too complicated. If you make it too complicated and you're like, oh, I'm going to come up with my own way and it's this really complicated thing, you're never really going to remember it. Or you're going to remember what it was. You're going to remember your 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 memorization technique, but you're not going to remember what the answer was because it was too far-fetched. Or remember something in relation, right? So you're like, oh, I'm remembering about an embalming. Now you're thinking, when we did this gentleman, we did this. Or, you know, I remember remembering vocab even in grade school, and I used to, you know, uh, it was a good way to make fun of my brother. (laughs) But, you know, I would start, I would come up with a word and I would relate it, right? So I would, I would read the word and go, oh, that reminds me of my brother. And what that did was then I would start referring to my brother. I know it was it was me being a a kid, but you know, I'd refer to my brother by these by some of these terms. Or I'd be like, oh yeah, he does this, or oh, when you do this, you're this, right? I start thinking about things in relation to society. Like, oh yeah, remember that woman that cut my mother off in her car? She was this. And I mean, it wasn't a bad word. It would have been, you know, oh, she was she was this because of the way she was dressed or the way that she presented herself or whatever it be. Okay. So it just 
allows you to remember certain things or make up scenarios. So you're thinking about embalming, you're thinking about funeral directing, you're thinking about a law case and think and say, well, this means if somebody were to blah, 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 don't just think about the definition, think about a scenario. Give yourself a scenario that it relates back to, and then that will help you remember it because you're remembering it in context. Now, the same thing. So now you've remembered things in context. You've eaten a good breakfast. You're going to take your exam first thing without any distractions that morning. You show up. Okay. You don't need to start reading things that morning. Why? Because you found another way to remember them. And that morning you get up. Again, you're not just remember straight out information. You get up, eat your breakfast in peace and quiet, and then go to your exam. Uh, we will also find it if you have a very busy household, and I know a lot of people tell me that, well, you know, I, you can't expect I, I could do that. My household's busy. I got to get my kids, you know, to school. I got this. I understand. I, I get it. I really do. Get a hotel. And I'm serious. Get yourself a hotel. If you have other friends that are all going to take their exam the same day, share the hotel. And all go to the same testing center for the same time slot. Because... What that does is everyone's in the same boat, no distractions. It gets you out of your household where you get up and you're like, I got all these things to do, all these, th you're not thinking about things, you don't have access to anything. I love going to hotels. I love when I get to a conference. I feel so relaxed after. I come back tired, but, you know, I feel so good at a conference. Why? Because I took myself out of my normal routine and I just have to, you know, live the hotel life for, you know, a couple of days. And so the same thing, just, Take yourself out of that, out of that busy atmosphere, get a hotel near the testing center, again, by yourself or with your friends, and then just stay there that night before. Get a babysitter if you have to, if you don't have anybody else to watch the kids. It's well worth it. Okay, it's, hotels cost a lot, but for the value of your exam and how much more it's going to cost you if you fail that, and the fact that it's going to hold up your career, trust me, though, it's worth it. Uh this really wraps up everything. I mean, it's just put everything into perspective. And again, bite-sized pieces, commit it to memory. Do not give up. Do not take, this is not a relaxing thing. If you want to go sit on the beach, go sit on the beach. But every 10 minutes, you're thinking of another topic. Do not, again, do not just start reading a flashcard and go to the next one. Eventually, you may be able to get to that point where you're like, all right, let me let me do a rapid-fire quiz show, and you can see if you can how many things you remember. But by doing that, you're only remembering the questions. Again, make sure you remember everything that surrounds it. When you get to that exam, again, same thing, no distractions that morning, good breakfast, peace and quiet, first exam of the morning, lay off as many other items that would lower your energy up to that point. Again, caffeine or sugar or any of those items, uh, try to lay off of those items. Again, making sure you're getting exercise, all of that, but also come up with ways to remember things. Again, give yourself ways, memorization tools, whatever the case may be. Um, they don't have to be appropriate. They really don't. Nobody else will hear them, just you. It's all in your head. You're only thinking about things in your head. Uh, then that's the best way to do it. And Another one, you know, I, I gave you how to remember how many feet are a mile, and I know that doesn't apply for those that are joining this episode for a funeral, but this all this stuff applies well beyond funeral and embalming. This applies to every field out there. But let's think about an anatomical example of 
when you stand in the anatomical position, you put your put your forearm straight out, right in front of you right now while I'm talking. Take your forearm and put it out in front of you, palm up. So now your your hand is in the supine position. Palm of your hand is up, the back of your hand is down, and in the same way, supine meaning like your hand, if it were to grip, could grip a bowl of soup from the underside of the bowl or the mug. All right, so now your now your hand is facing upwards. Right now, your ulna is on the medial side of your arm. That's on the inside of your arm, on the pinky side. Your radius is on the thumb side or the lateral side of your arm on the outside. So how do I remember this? What is my memorization tool for remembering this? This is a physical item, right? This is not just remembering numbers here. So when I were to give you a picture on the exam and I were to show you the radius and the ulna next to each other, I'm going to cut that image so that there's only those two bones next to each other. I did not attach the humerus. I do not attach the hand, no wrist, nothing. You have no reference point. You can go, oh, I know the radius is on the thumb side. No, you have none of that. All you have is the radius and the ulna. Now, one thing you can guess, unless otherwise told, that things are in the anatomical position. All right, that works, except you got two arms. The radius is always on the medial. The sorry, the ulna is always on the medial. The radius is always on the lateral side when you're in the anatomical position. So how do I know which arm that is? Test never told me if it was the right or left arm. Oops. So what what I do know is that when when facing down, as long as this examiner didn't get creative and put the bones in some diagonal or upwards position, as long as they're in the anatomical position. I know that the radius is thicker than the ulna, okay, same way that the tibia is thicker than the fibula. So that helps, but you can also know from the anatomical position that the thumb is the thicker finger, the pinky is the thinner, therefore ulna is on the pinky side, radius is on the thumb side. Okay, other ways to remember. Now, when in the anatomical position, think of the letter R, R for radius. When you think of the letter R, it is wide on the bottom, right? The opening is on the bottom. And since the opening is on the bottom of the letter R, think of this big flailing, scrolly R. That means that the bottom of the radius is wider than the top of the radius. And the ulna, okay, I know it's going to look more like a V when you do this, but the ulna is this big fancy U, and the top is flailing out. The top of the U is wider than the bottom of the U. And as a result of that, therefore the ulna is wider on the top, on the superior uh, side, than it is on the inferior, the bottom. So those are ways to remember things like that. All right, so put your forearms straight out. And now you're going to take your hand that is currently supine, is in the anatomical position, your palm of your hand is currently facing up, and you're now going to rotate your wrist. You can only rotate it in one direction, so I don't have to tell you what direction to rotate it in. You're going to rotate your wrist so that your uh, hand is now prone, which means facing the the back of your hand, the dorsal or ventral side of your hand is now facing up, and the anterior or uh, ventral side, the palm of your hand, is now facing down. All right, so your shoulder, your humerus, none of that's changed, right? So the only part in doing this while you're doing this right now is that your forearm is twisted. So now my exam question for you as we conclude our podcast is which bone is on top? Think about that.
I'll give you a second while I continue talking. Think about which bone is on top. So what you're doing is now you're doing the margarina in the exam. And that's perfectly fine, as long as everyone knows that. And I love questions like this on my exams. Why? Because now you get students, they're sitting there and they're doing, and I encourage it, you know, now they look like you're doing the margarina in class. And I can tell you exactly what question you're on based off of what you're touching. Oh, that person's touching their temporal bone. They're touching the back of their neck. They're, you know, they're feeling their ribs and counting them, whatever the case may be. That's perfectly fine. Okay, I allow that. And I can tell you what question you're on, too. But think about that. So you now twist it over. So now you're in class and you're twisting. That's that's not cheating. That's using your own body as a as a memorization tool. And you can do that. Use your own body to think about you know things. Okay, I'm counting how many knuckles I have, and I'm counting the fingers. Can't really count the wrist bones, can you? you know, your carpals are a little bit more hidden, so that's kind of hard. So you do need to remember that there's eight uh, carpals in your wrist. But I can count the fingers, and I know how many. Uh, metacarpals, and I know how many phalanges based off of counting. All right. You guys think you got the right answer on this one? So when I, when I twist my wrist from supine to prone, the radius is now on top of the ulna. I hope you got that one right. As always... I hope you got a lot out of this. Uh, there is, you can always reach out. My contact information is on the mortuarymayhem.com website. Again, listen back to our January 2023 episode when we covered how to take an exam. Uh, this episode is more on how to properly study. So take your study material, take your exams, and I really hope you guys do great this coming uh, fall as you enter classes for those that are still in school. And for our practitioners out there, I hope this helps you in any future certifications or licensure exams and do pass this information on to those that are going through school so that they can benefit from this. I want to remind everybody that we have the National Funeral Directors Association Arranger Training coming up in September 29th in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Go to the NFDA website and go to the education page. There is information on how to sign up. If you qualify for any discounts, that may be military, student, you do have to call the phone number on there. Call the NFDA offices and they can get you registered for those discounts. Otherwise, you can use the web form to sign up. You can also find the same flyer on the MortuaryMayhem.com website. We do have the flyer up. It will remain up there until after the seminar has taken place. Again, this is the seminar with Melissa Luce. If you listen back to that episode uh, that we did record, again, I really encourage you to come. This is well worth your time, well worth uh, We do have hotels locally. We can help you with all of your travel. Um, just you know, arrangements, all that. I'll give you the best advice as to where to come in, where to stay. Uh, this is going to be a amazing opportunity. Well worth it. Uh, come see beautiful Massachusetts in September. It's going to be the fall. Uh, so we got all the leaves changing. So definitely worth it. Definitely worth the trip. Come in. Uh, again, you can find that flyer on the mortuarymayhem.com website or go to the NFDA website under their education section and sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mortuary Mayhem. For links to information discussed during this episode, please visit the website at www.mortuarymayhem.com. 
Do you have questions, comments, suggestions for topics, or want to be a guest on the show? Email us at podcast at mortuarymayhem.com. We should do this again sometime.